Bible today. Let's open up to Mark chapter 15. And I want to do something a little different. Uh, the first service was a little bit more academic. We'll call it scholastic. <laughs> you're like, Manny, you don't have the capacity to be scholastic. Well, you're right. Well, let's just say it was the best I could do. But here I just want to share from my heart. I just want to share out of Mark 15 just a simple message about the cross. You know, the cross, the intersection of two lines. What is it? One perpendicular, one horizontal. That's the way the dictionary would define a, a, define a cross. They might even say something like a, a Roman uh, wooden instrument of death invented by the Phoenicians, mastered by the Romans to produce the maximum amount of pain in the maximum amount of time. And when you look at the cross throughout history, you will find that people were on there for, you know, 13 days, and they'd be eaten by animals from below and birds from above, and it's just crazy, the, the cross. But, but when you talk about not just a cross, but the cross, it's not just the intersection of two lines, it's the intersection of grace and love. It's the intersection of mercy and justice. It's that place where we were saved, where God died for our sins. And, and if you have a hard time, I, I don't know, I, I, like I was sharing with you earlier, how you doing today? You know, if you find yourself struggling in your walk, you know, not uh, putting one foot in front of the other with both eyes on Jesus, not loving your wife the way that you should or submitting your husband as God has called you to. Maybe uh, you're struggling at work or whatever with porn, whatever the different issues might be, people drinking, people getting high, you know, one foot in, one foot out. You're not really walking on water. You're not moving mountains. You're not experiencing the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. It's because you have not kept your eyes on the cross. I tell you what, you get back on the cross and you look at that, the Bible says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So when we're fixing our eyes on Jesus, we're seeing what he did for us, the love that he has on the cross. The cross is the clearest, greatest, grandest explanation it's, a, it's the most wonderful manifestation of what true love is. And when that love finds a home in your heart, then you will be a committed Christian. You really will. And that's what God calls us to. And so what ends up happening is we forget the cross, and what ends up happening is we start going this way and that way, upside down. Next thing you know, there are some people out there, they don't even go to church anymore. I mean, they're not in the Word anymore. They're not in prayer anymore. They're not even with their family anymore because they drift away from the Lord. You know, as I was praying, I was just telling you guys, man, we care for you. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what the struggles are in your life, but we live in a fallen world, fighting fallen angels and fallen bodies. Let me tell you something. We don't have a chance without God, without that supernatural power of God. Or you might putt-putt through life, you might survive, but you won't thrive unless you're walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of love, where love grips your heart. And when God loves you, the, the, the best response is, is to love him back. And you do that by keeping his commandments. But you got to keep your eyes on the cross. You know, I was uh, thinking about this uh, kind of a silly illustration, but my, my nephew, 
cute little guy, man, when he was little. You know how it changes when they get older, but you know he's <laughs> cute, man. And I remember he was our little uh, ring bearer. still love him to pieces, but, you know, uh, one day we saw him and he had glasses on. And I guess what had happened was uh, over time he had developed some type of uh, uh, something going on in his eyes where he was cross-eyed. He was cross-eyed. And, uh, and I guess that's what I'm asking you to do today is, is to be cross-eyed. Can you guys do that? Okay, let's all try that together right now, okay? <laughs> no, you know what I'm talking about, though. And so one day they gave him glasses to take away the cross-eyedness or whatever. And, uh, and I think that's what happens in our life. You know, when we first come to the Lord, it's just so amazing that God would die for me. And then somehow we get some type of worldly glasses and it just takes it away. Let's look at it today and I just kind of want to see him die. I want to talk a little bit about it and then at the end what we'll do is we'll go over the seven sayings of Christ from the cross and hopefully it encourages you today. In, in Mark 15, we read in verse 16, then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium and they called together the whole garrison. And so the praetorium was the governor's palace. Uh, it must have been pretty nice, I'll bet. And uh, the, the garrison is probably one-tenth of a legion, so more than likely about 600 soldiers. It says in verse 17, And they clothed him with purple, they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! Then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him. And bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. And so here we see, first of all, as Jesus is on his way to the cross, that he is mocked. He is mocked before the cross. You know, many of you know that the thorns are a result of the fall that was brought about in the book of Genesis chapter 3, right? If you were to read Genesis 3, 17 and 18, it says, Then to Adam he, God, said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it, cursed, cursed is the ground for your sake, and in toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You know, how many of you here, you've gotten stuck by a thorn, just out of curiosity, man? It could be the roses that you're trimming, and they're so beautiful. And you're like, man, you ain't so beautiful after all, you know? <laughs> you know, it could be anything, some simple weeds, things like that. You know, that's a result of the fall. That's a result of our sin. And isn't it uh, ironic, it's not a coincidence, that he was crowned with thorns. That they took that, that crown of thorns, they wove it together because remember, he was convicted of being a king. You know, the, the Jews brought three you know, charges of treason against us. Number one, he musters up the nation to rebellion. That wasn't true. Number two, he tells them not to pay taxes. That's not true. Well, number three, he claims to be a king. Oh, hey, Pilate said, you know what? There might be some merit to that. Even though Pilate knew he was innocent, at the end of the day, he had to have something to really, you know, hang the sentence on. And so he's king. And so what do they do? They crown him with thorns, and then they beat it on his head. 
You know, we got to know what happened when Jesus died, that he bore the curse that we deserve. Not only is the thorns the, the curse, the whole cross is a curse. Paul writes in Galatians 3, verse 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And that's a reference from Deuteronomy 21, 23. And so when Christ hung on that cross, that tree, he was cursed for us. You know, they, they clothed him in purple, and you guys know that was the expensive clothing of the day. It was royalty, it was majesty. And then what did they do? They bowed the knee and they said, Hail! King of the Jews. Now, I don't know if you know what hail is in reference to. It's pretty much saying, long live the king. Long live the king. That's what they were doing to him. Long live the king as they're ready to kill him. So what were they doing? They were, they were mocking him. Have you ever been mocked out of curiosity? I mean, for me, when someone mocks me, I, I think of how it shocks me, right? I mean, come on. How many of you here... You know, take it in stride, ain't no thing, but a chicken wing. How many of you would say that, right? You wouldn't say that. I mean, someone mocks me, it rocks my world, man. And that's us. You know what, we're, I'm sorry, I love you guys, but we're pathetic, man. We are pathetic, man. My wife says something, what are you talking about, Willis? I mean, we get all upset about stuff like that. It's like, come on, man, he was God. The creator, the maker, the maintainer of everything. And they put a crown of thorns on him and they beat him and they bowed down and they mocked him. Long live the king. And he just took it in stride. They spit on his face. Isaiah says that he just took it. He kind of just said, okay, and he bore it. Why? Because what was he doing? He was saving us. He was saving us. So they take the purple robe off, they put his own clothes back on, and it's kind of interesting because um, have you guys ever cut yourself when you're bleeding? Uh, have you ever done that? I mean, you know, have you ever been bleeding underneath your clothes? Have you ever done that? You know, I don't know if you guys have ever done that. Hopefully you haven't, <laughs> you know, but I mean, you get blood underneath your clothes and then, you know, what happens when you put the clothes on top of the blood? It sticks to it. And then what happens when they rip it off again? Jesus suffered from hematidrosis. That was that he sweat blood through his glands, which made his skin super sensitive. Imagine the things that he went through. Why so much pain? Why was the pain so great? You want to know why? Because the purpose was. There would be no greater pain ever in the history of the world. And that's what cross is by definition. It's But when you do God's purpose and it causes pain. That's our cross too. Sometimes we get, you know, uh, through trials or we go through heartache, we experience pain because we're trying to do God's purpose. And that's cool. We're going to go through that. We are called to take up our cross. Please, God help us not to run away when it becomes painful. But remember, it was nothing compared to his cross. And so they are done mocking him, at least for now, and then they lead him away. It says in verse 21, And then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull, 
And then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, and I don't know if you write in your Bible, but in my Bible I do every once in a while, and I highlighted that part right there. They crucified him. They divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. There it is again. And the inscription of his accusation was written above, the king of the Jews. And so, you know, the cross, imagine how weak he is. You guys know, right, when you study the whole chronology of it, he had three Jewish trials and three Roman trials. He'd been up all night. How many of you here, when was the last time you stayed up all night? I remember we did an all-night prayer meeting here, and the next Sunday I did a sermon. Oh my gosh, it was terrible, man. I mean, to stay up all night, just that in and of itself would wipe us out. But he's been beaten by the Jewish guards. He's been beaten by the Roman soldiers. He's been flogged with the cat of nine tails. Remember that was? That's those leather strands with uh, bits of rock and bone in it, just ripping out the flesh. And then as he's ready to go to the cross, they command him. In those days, the Romans would you know, say, you got to carry your own cross. And so more than likely, it was just the, the cross beam. So that would be anywhere from 75 to 100 pounds. And so imagine going through everything he went through and now called to carry that cross. How many of you guys here think you could do that? Some of you guys are buff, but man, you're not that buff. I'm sorry. I, sometimes I'll even go to Home Depot and every once in a while I'll pick up a piece of wood here and there and I'll be like, Henry, help me, you know, and something like, <laughs> you can't do it. Imagine carrying it. So he couldn't do it. So the Roman soldiers knew that. They had the, the freedom to be able to say, hey, help me carry something. Remember, Jesus talked about that. He said, hey, all you have to do is, uh, you know, the Roman tells you to carry it one mile. What did Jesus say? Carry it two. So they could do that. No problem, right? So here's Simon. And you guys know why Simon is there, right? He's there for the Passover. Undoubtedly, he wants to go and, you know, celebrate this symbolic act of the Passover where the lamb died for the people and they would take the blood and they would put it on the doorpost. And he was thinking, you know, pure symbolism. When he, instead of that, God had something better, I'm going to give you the real lamb of God. Now, when they first asked him to carry the cross, I don't think he was excited. He's probably thinking, oh, no, I don't want to take the cross. There's no way I want to take that cross. They might kill me. They might mistake me for the one that's supposed to be crucified, right? And so he's thinking, no, no, no. Little did he know it would be the greatest thing that he could ever do in his whole life, the privilege. Imagine one day we're going to meet him and we're going to say, you're the one that carried the cross? You know, Acts 13.1, it's interesting, and mentions a man by Simeon from Niger. And that right there is the same area where this guy was from, Simon, Simeon, same name. A lot of people believe that was him. Not only did he get saved, but homeboy, he became a leader in the church. He was responsible for sending out missionaries into the world. That's where Paul and Barnabas did their first missionary journey. What, why would you have such a fire? Why would you have such an urgency? Why so much love? Because I was there when he carried, I carried the cross for him. You know, it's interesting how here it mentions his two sons, Alexander and Rufus. And he basically is saying, like, you guys know who Alexander and Rufus are, right? How, how do you know? They must have been Christians. 
I mean, you just do a little bit of simple arithmetic in the spiritual realm, and what you find is that Simon, as a result of carrying the cross, got saved. And so did his sons, right? And so as they get there, they get there to this place called Golgotha. And you guys know that means skull, right? That's Aramaic. Uh, You know, you just do a little history in the language, Latin. We get our word Calvary from it. It means skull. You know, so you guys go to Skull Church. Did you guys know that? (laughs) Calvary Chapel. You know, it sounded so pretty, but that's what it is. And it's kind of funny you know, I'll tell you this. If you go, how many of you here are going to Israel with us? You guys are all going, right? Come on, let's go. Let's start recycling now. I'm saying it'll be really worth it, man. But you're going to see it even today. You can still see the skull there on the side of the mountain. Unfortunately, there's a bus station down below, but you just kind of lift up and you know that's where it is. Uh, another thing that's interesting that some theologians will talk about is that the, the, the Latin word uh, cranium, uh, that, that whole skull, the whole concept, it has to do with maybe even someone looking at what we're talking about today and thinking it through in your cabeza. You know, thinking it through in your head. And you say, without Jesus, I'm doomed. You start to reason. Isaiah 1 says, reason. Without Jesus, I'm doomed. Without Jesus, I'm destined for hell. Without the Lord, I'm on the slippery slope with no hope. But Jesus came, died for my sins, rose again. Look at his love for me. You start thinking these things through in your cranium. I tell you what, man, there is life. Do you need to make a decision for Christ today? You know, something going on in your, in your life, in your marriage, you know, addictions, uh, physical calamities, tragedies, money problems, you name it. Life will sink without the Lord. You know, the loss of a loved one, it makes you think about eternity. That's why the Bible says it's better to go to funerals than to feasts. We're not all going to live forever. I, last I heard, one out of every one person dies. Unless we get raptured. You think this one through. The one that we're talking about today, Jesus Christ, he didn't just die for all those other people. He died for you. You know, they led him there, and the Bible says that when they got to this place of a skull called Golgotha, that they, it says, first offered him wine mingled with myrrh to drink. And so they kind of wanted to make the pain a little lighter, but he didn't take it. He says, no, when I redeem the world, as I'm bearing the sins of the world on my shoulder, I do not want to lose any of my mental faculties. I will endure this with eyes wide open. He did not want the drugs. And it says, and when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. And so to the Jews, they had five articles of clothing. The one that was most valuable was the one that was seamless. It was a tunic. And so they said, hey, for that last one right there, man, let's let's kind of throw some dice for that one, man. The soldiers had that perk of getting the clothes from the criminal. And so apparently this one was valuable. And so, you know, Psalm 22, if you read verse 16, 18, it talks about how they would gamble for his clothes And so at the end of the day, here's something else to think about. Although it's a beautiful prophecy, 
that it's just so articulate, so specific. Here's the thing to think about, that when God died on that cross, he was naked. I mean, maybe he had a loincloth. A lot of theologians believe that there he hung, the bloody mess that he was, naked. How much does God love you? Like this, you, me, even though we're all messed up, aren't you? Some of you here, I know you. And I'm like, oh, I know that guy right there. He's all messed up, man. (laughs) And I know him, man, and he's all messed up, and especially her. And and let me tell you something, and you got to know this, the love of God is like the Amazon River flowing down to water a daisy. God loves you as if you were the only one to love. His love is unconditional. His love has no limits. You know, we're singing that song today, and I know some people, they might trip out on it. What do you mean the reckless love of God? You know, the reckless love of God. That doesn't sound too neat and tidy and theologically true to me. But, but you know what? I mean, the song even shares that he would leave the 99 and go searching for the one. I mean, that sounds a little reckless to me. And when you think about love and just how he loves us even while we're his enemies, I mean, though he would love us like this, beaten, spit upon, crown of thorns, nailed to a cross, naked, that the Father would give his Son and make it the centerpiece of civilization. I know that life is hard. Yeah, we go through things. But my prayer is that you would know, that we would know, that in spite even of all the tragedies that we experience, you cannot question God's love. He died for you. I mean, Roman crucifixion, that was the worst. I mean, there was, they wouldn't even allow Roman citizens to be crucified. And, uh, you know, they wouldn't even talk about, they couldn't like really mention the word in a proper Roman home. That's how hideous it was. You know, Philippians chapter 2 says that God, we should be like him because, you know, he didn't lightly hold on so as to speak to the privileges of being divine. Although he was God, he emptied himself of those divine privileges. And think about it, the God who made everything he stepped into time, he became a human being, and that's pretty much, that's pretty amazing. But then he became a servant, that's even more amazing. But it says he went so low that he even died, and he didn't just die, he died the death of the cross. And so what is God trying to say here? He's trying to say that I love you. Can you hear that? Has it sunk in? Is your life different as a result of the love of God? Because if your life is not different, then it hasn't sunk in. 
I, I still remember the first time that I told my wife I loved her. At that time, we were just dating, you know, and I, and I told her I love her, and she didn't tell me I love you back. <laughs> That's cold, huh? Don't you think? <laughs> and, uh, you know, eventually she called me up, and she just said, I love you, and I was like, okay, cool. But then eventually, you know, as time progresses, you guys know words aren't enough, huh? Show me that you love me by the life that you live, by the sacrifices that you make. Show me that you love me because you still care for me even though sometimes I fall short. God is consumed with his care and love for you. And that's what the cross is. It's a demonstration of that love. Romans 5.8 says that, even while we were still sinners, God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so, as they continue on here, we see, it says in verse 25, now it was the third hour and they crucified him, so that's nine in the morning and the inscription of his accusation was written above, the king of the Jews and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. I mean, so you read Psalm 52, Isaiah 52, 53, you're going to see these prophecies so amazing. And, and those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking among themselves as the scribes said, he saved others himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And even those who were crucified with him reviled him. And so if the Lord would have listened to them, they said, save yourself and then we'll believe. What would have happened if he would have saved himself? He couldn't have saved us. That's what love is. Love is putting others before yourself. Love is thinking less of yourself. Love is forgetting yourself. Believe it or not, that's what God did for us. We know that it wasn't the nails that held him there. Right? It was love. So he chose to stay. And it says in verse 33, Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So now at 12 noon, some, thinks, some think it was just a natural eclipse. Others believe it was a supernatural. Uh, the darkness, um, perhaps this is a time when he bore our sins. And there's this symbolic darkness over the land. And at the ninth hour, now it's 3 p.m., Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, that's Aramaic, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the reason he was forsaken, the reason for the first time ever in the history of eternity, he was separated from the Father, is because he bore our sins. And God the Father cannot look upon sin with favor and think about it. And this was what really the Lord struggled with the most, more than anything else. Because I don't know if you can think of eternity past. Can you guys think of eternity past? Because let's start right now, okay? <laughs> don't, you're going to blow a fuse on the way. I'm telling you that, man. Eternity past. Eternity past. Never, 
ever for a sliver of a second separated from the Father that he loved. Perfect love. Now he's separated from him. And that's that. That's why Psalm 22, 1, it was a prophecy. It would point them back to that. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken so that you and I would never be forsaken. Now here's another something to think about. He, looking back, was never forsaken by his father. Never. Never. Here he got forsaken so that you and I How many of you here are Christians? Okay. So that you will never, ever, 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 for the future eternity, you will never, ever, no matter what you're going through on earth, what takes place between now and heaven, and then on into eternity, you will never, ever be forsaken Hebrews 13 5 you're like well I think he's forsaking me right now Manny because I'm thinking about in and out during your study (laughs) well that's going to taste terrible (laughs) but he loves you well I'm going to run away well he'll run after you and he'll tackle you and he'll look you in the eyes and he'll tell you, I love you. Now, I'm not saying you can't fall away. I'm not saying stuff like that, man. But let me tell you something. The love of God that pursues us with reckless abandon is the reality of what the Bible teaches. He was forsaken so we would never be. It changes everything when you know that God is with you through all the trials and tough times of life. And so when Jesus was there on that cross, uh, they misunderstood him. They thought his Aramaic was Hebrew. And so in verse 35, some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he's calling on Elijah. And then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And then what ends up happening in verse 37, and Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So let me see if I can go through this real quick with you. As far as, you know, when Jesus was on the cross, you know, what what was going on? I think we can summarize it with the seven sayings of Jesus. You guys know what the first thing he said when they nailed him to the cross and they propped him up? You guys remember what it was? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Luke chapter 23, verse 34. I don't know about you, but for me, it's hard to imagine that through all of this, there wasn't even a bit of bitterness. I mean, there was not a sliver of it, not a single thought for self, no interest in vengeance or even justice at this point. His heart was that the guilty would find grace and forgiveness. And you know, you might look at them, and we talked about this before, 
You know, oh, those bad people, they killed Jesus. They crucified him. Those Jews, those Romans, those soldiers. Homeboy, it was you. It was you. Remember what I told you? John Stott said, you will never appreciate the cross done for you unless you realize the cross done by you. We killed him. We beat him. We spit on our Savior's face. We mocked him. We covered him. We buried him in our sins. And what does he say? Father, forgive them. They don't really know what they're doing. That's his heart. Amazing. So unlike us. His second words are found in John 2, John 19, 26, and 27. As he's there on the cross and his mom is there and John is there. When Jesus therefore saw his mother, the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. And, you know, here's the thing. As he's dying on the cross, he's consumed with his care for others, isn't he? And so what is he saying? He's saying, John, you know what? My brothers aren't believers yet. Can you, uh, you know, take care of my mom? And so behold your mom and mom, behold your son. Again, going back to the fact that he's saving others. That's what love is. I suppose if you want, you can hone in on the mom factor, but I think the more meaningful message is that he was practically and spiritually and temporarily and eternally a caring God. Number three, Luke 23, 43, and Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And that was when, remember earlier, the two thieves were mocking him, and then eventually, as they're watching him die, one of the thieves says, you know what? He is who he says he is. I mean, imagine how close they were to that loving act of redeeming the world. You know, they saw the same things, they experienced the same things, but one saw the truth and one didn't. One would go to heaven, one would go to hell. And all he did was he just said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he's saved. He's going to heaven. You guys look forward to heaven? You'll be able to eat pizza and chocolate. It'll be good for you. You will never have to floss your teeth again. Not to embarrass the ladies, you won't have to dye your hair. I mean, a whole bunch of stuff, man. <laughs> I'll be taller. I mean, just a whole bunch of things in heaven. We're going to see God. How'd you get there? How'd you get to heaven? Oh, I was uh, circumcised. I was baptized. I was hypnotized. I was canonized. How'd you get to heaven? I went to church 1,733 times. How'd you get to heaven? You know, I, I raised my hand. I went forward. No, how do you get to heaven? You want to go to heaven? How do you get to heaven? He did the hard work. He died for you. He bore your sin. He paid a debt he didn't know because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. It was an infinite offense. Therefore, it had to be God who died on that cross. He did the hard work. 
what do, you, what do we need to do? We need to say the sinner's prayer. You're like, okay, well, where is it? Is it? No, the sinner's prayer. I mean, there's no formula. There's no mantra. There's nothing that we memorize as a church. In your heart, you got to say, I'm a sinner. And I need Jesus to be my Savior. Lord, I give you my life. I'm not playing games anymore. I'm not playing church anymore. You know, I'm not going to hold on to the drugs anymore, the, 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 the life that is absolutely, you know, destructive. I, I let it go. That way now I can cling to the cross, solely to your cross. I cling. That's all he said. Lord, remember me when you get into paradise. And what did Jesus say today? Today you'll be with me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's just so cool as we go through these things, what God is doing there on the cross. The fourth thing Jesus said is what we read in our text, my God, my God, uh, why have you forsaken me? And then after this, the fifth thing is John 19, 28. Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. Did you hear me? And someone bring me some water. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> Why did he say that? Oh, you're like, oh, now he cared about himself. Not really, because he wanted to say something loud, but he couldn't because his tongue was super dry. So the fifth thing, he said, I, I thirst. They came, they gave him something to drink. And the sixth thing he said is written in John 19:30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said that those three words. I don't want to yell because I've already been yelling too much and my throat's getting a little coarse here. But he yelled. What did he say? It is finished. Tetelestai, debt paid in full. You don't have to earn your way to heaven. He finished that work. I don't know. Real quick, I know I'm going over here. Um, and you're like, yeah, but um, do you think the devil wanted Jesus to go to the cross? It's a trick question. It's a, it's a complex question. I don't think he did and sometimes. I mean, he offered alternatives. You don't need to go to the cross. I'll give you the kingdom. Um, but when Satan entered Judas... Judas went to the, the religious leaders and said, I'll betray him. So I don't know. Sometimes I wonder about that. But here's the thing. I have a feeling that at the end of the day, what Satan wanted was for God the Son to suffer as much as he could. As much as he could. And he just thought, the Satan just thought, I know that if he goes to the cross, he will not make it through. When he sees Judas kiss him and betray him, when he's you know, forsaken by all his disciples and even his father when he's mocked and beaten and suffers and experiences the penalty for sin and is separated from his father. I just know he's not going to make it through. I bet you that's what he was thinking. But he did. He reminds me of that great picture, Rocky II. 
You guys remember that, Rocky II? And I've told you this before, but please bear with me because maybe there's one or two people that have never seen it. And I'm sorry, I'm going to ruin it for you, man. <laughs> you know, Rocky II is when he's supposed to fight Apollo Creed and his wife doesn't want him to. And she's like, oh, I don't want you mixing with him. And so what ends up happening, she gets pregnant and she falls into a coma. Next thing you know, Rocky's in the chapel. He's praying, 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 praying. Until finally one day, she wakes up out of the coma and so Rocky's there by the bedside, and he's like, hey, Adrian, you know, if you don't want me to, if you don't want me to mix with Creed, we'll, we'll work it out some other way. And you remember what she said? She said, this is what I want you to do. She said, come here. He said, what? Come here. She said, when? And then, bong, the bell, right? When? Bong. What did he do? He had a grin on his face. He got up, and he did everything he could to win. And I think that when I was thinking about Rocky, because you know how I like to make spiritual parallels, deep, deep movies like that. <laughs> I think in one sense, it's like this is God, because he prayed, I'm going to please God. And I'm going to bless my wife. And at the end, what did he do? Yo, Adrian. We did it. That's what Jesus said. We did it. I did it. It is finished. I remember when my daughter got baptized, and she's kind of a, kind of like me, a little quiet. And, uh, I remember when I was just weeping, baptizing her, and she comes out of the pool, and she's all, yeah, you know. That's what he did. Why did he do this? Well, that, that verse tells us, you know, the, net, the last thing Jesus said was, you know, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, Luke 23, 46. At that point, you know, he released his, he can now die because he did the work, but the reason he died is because that veil was torn in two from top, to bottom, And that veil was the veil that separated man from God. And now there's no longer a separation. No matter who you are, you've been a Christian for 30 seconds, 30 years. You, you know, you're doing great. You know, you're struggling. It doesn't matter who you are. He tore the veil in two from top to bottom so that we can worship. We can pray. We can have a relationship with God because Revelation 1.5 says you were washed. You are washed, you are clean, you are free, you are forgiven. God sees no sin. You are washed in the blood of God. That's pretty cool, huh? And so I think, in closing, that's a pretty good reason to be cross-eyed. You guys, let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You know what kept Jesus on the cross? When he saw you. And so basically what we end is this, that he was able to finish because he saw you and will be able to finish if we see him. Do you see him? pray that you would.